listening to A Senate Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Today, we'll be talking about how the Georgia Senate runoffs will affect public health in the future. Well, we are currently sitting in the middle of the political universe with uh, the state of Georgia going blue for the first time in decades and two Senate races in a runoff. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, But Kyle, you've spent a lot of time here um, in the state of Georgia, actually, on the campaign trail. Can you kind of set the stage for us, help us understand this a little bit better um, with these Senate races? Maybe like a quick summary, like, like, say, 30 seconds. Yeah, sure. Well, the short version is we have two incumbent multimillionaire senators running for re-election against um, an individual who would potentially be one of the youngest members of the U.S. Senate and an African-American here in the Deep South who uh, is the chair or is the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is Martin Luther King Jr.'s former church. So it's going to be crazy. It's going to be um, hundreds of millions of dollars are going to be spent, and it's going to be a nail-biter. Yeah, I agree. Um, but let's dive just a little bit deeper and talk a little bit about how we got here in the first place. Yeah, so, I mean, it's very um, odd and um, irregular, I guess, to have two Senate races on the ballot at the same time, let alone going into a runoff. Like, this is really kind of unprecedented um, in my memory. Um, I mean, so Senator Purdue is running for re-election for the first time. Um, this is the normal year uh, he is supposed to be on the ballot. The interesting issue is Senator Kelly Leffler. So she took the seat from retiring Senator Isaacson, who resigned in December 2019 because of some health issues. And so with that, the uh, governor here in Georgia, Governor Kemp, gets to replace the um, senator's seat only until the next statewide election, which was here in uh, 2020. So Kelly Leffler, Senator Leffler, I should say, is running to um, fill the rest of Senator Isaacson's term. So she's running for a seat that's going to be from 2020 to 2022. Oh, so it's just her. She's just running then for the next couple of years. The remainder of Senator Isaacson's full term. So then whoever wins the seat will have to turn around and run again in 2022. Um, And so Senator Perdue, however, is running for a full term. Got it. And so, you know, they both had their elections back in November along with the presidential election, but neither of them won their race, even though they're both the incumbents. So... Why is that? Like, what are the rules in Georgia? How did did that happen? So Georgia, you know, um, I I think we should take a step back and, you know, especially in this time of um, a national uh, race with the uh, president on the ballot and everyone's talking about what's going on in Arizona, what's going on in Pennsylvania, Nevada, Wisconsin, all of these states. It's important for people to understand that the Constitution states that states will run elections. And so each one of these states are running by basically their own rules of how they run and govern their own elections. So there have been numerous U.S. senators who have been elected to the U.S. Senate with well below 50% of the vote. 
Here in Georgia, however, you have to have at least 50% plus one vote to win. And so at the end of the day, Senator Perdue was about, I think, a half a percentage point off of meeting that. So that triggered a runoff. Now, the other case with Senator Leffler's uh, race was a completely different dynamic because you had over a dozen people on the ballot. Oh, wow. Um, and Raphael Warnock, who is the uh, uh, current head pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, got the most votes. Um, Kelly Leffler was second. And so in this scenario, the top two vote getters, called a jungle primary, the top two vote getters go into a runoff. Now, it could have been Senator Collins, I mean, uh, uh, Congressman Collins and Senator Leffler. If they both got the top two votes, they would have gone into a runoff. It doesn't have to be the Republican and a Democrat. It's whoever gets the top two votes. So in this case, it was um, Raphael Warnock and Senator Leffler. And that's how we're in this crazy situation where everyone is coming to the state of Georgia for the next two months um, to raise money and campaign because the U.S. Senate is kind of in the balance with these two seats. Yeah. So, I mean, anytime we have a Senate race, it's an, it's important. It's a big opportunity for either party to, you know, make a difference and to have, you know, their elected leadership up in the Senate, um, which is a key priority. But this is a, an even more unique situation that we're in because, as you just mentioned, the fate of the Senate and which party will hold the majority in this new administration really comes down to the state of Georgia. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I certainly have never seen or lived through anything like this. And it's probably unlikely we will see something of this magnitude anytime soon, where one state, two Senate races, control of the Senate and the balance. It's, 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 you know, I'm not looking forward to the ads, but um, it's going to be a crazy two months over, you know, until January 5th. And what it boils down to is control of the Senate. If Senator Perdue and Senator Leffler both prevail, then it's status quo. Mitch McConnell remains Senate Majority Leader and Republicans control with a very narrow majority control the Senate. Now, if... Senator Leffler and Senator Perdue both lose, then that's a 50-50 split in the Senate. And incoming Vice President-elect Kamala Harris gets to be the deciding vote in the majority. And so that means Democrats will have control of the Senate. So this really is unprecedented in that these two Senate seats control the entire Senate. It's really incredible and, and truly a historic moment for our, our nation. What do you think are the odds of, of really either side being able to, you know, one, the incumbents both to keep their seats um, and for the Dems to flip and, you know, even for one or the other to flip? Do you think they're going to um, both stay the same or... Uh, just kind of what what do you think are the different scenarios here and how things will play out? Yeah, well, I will first off by say um, if if I uh, got paid for handicapping races, I would uh, not make a lot of money. 
and neither would a lot of people because um, it's anybody's anybody's guess. I, I, I there are a couple pollsters here in Georgia who I trust and know how to poll. They have this in, in a dead heat in both races, and I I just think it is going to be extremely unlikely that it's going to be a split ticket. I think they either both win or both lose. I don't I don't see a scenario where we have a senator, you know, Purdue and a senator Warnock or the other way around. Um it's just, you know, it's going to come down to voter turnout. And typically in runoffs, Republicans tend to do better in voter turnout in runoffs. Is that here in the state of Georgia or nationwide? Uh, traditionally nationwide, but here in Georgia especially. You know, I've been in a few of those scenarios with having a, a being in a runoff. And, you know, it's just kind of the old adage that, you know, Republicans in, in you know, this is very general terms, are not working as many hourly jobs and they're able to get off work and you know there, there are all of these um, different reasons why Republicans tend to turn out more but all of that is out the door because it's 2020 and nothing is um, as normal in 2020. I think you can see the amount of turnout that the Democrats had in early voting and absentee ballot voting, not just here in Georgia, but across the nation. There is clearly a, um, a desire to get people out to vote here in Georgia, and that's on both sides. And it doesn't, I, it, I honestly say this, it does not matter what the candidates say between now and January 5th. It's all about what we call the ground game. It's all about who can get their people out and voting in early voting, absentee ballot, and day of. That's who will prevail, whoever has the best ground game. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's hard to tell, I think, at this point, ultimately, who who has the best ground game or who will between now and Election Day. Um, you know, I, I think it'll also be interesting to see uh, just how much money gets pumped into the state over the next couple of weeks. Um, I've already seen a couple of figures that are sort of eye-popping, um, but that... Do you have a best guess for how much you think? Oh, hundreds of millions. And the people who are going to be making money, it's going to be great for the uh, ad-buying economy and the direct mail economy because there's just going to be millions and millions of dollars spent on We, we may have gone into the wrong business, Kyle. <laughs> yes, I, I have been told that over and over again. All I can say is... Uh, on streaming services like Netflix and Disney Plus, they don't have ads, so you may want to pick those subscriptions up for the next few months, so you don't have to listen to the ads. And they are not our sponsor. <laughs> but if they would like to be, we'd be more than happy to have you. Uh, so obviously, everyone is focused on on these races and how they'll impact the Senate majority and whether or not Mitch McConnell becomes our majority, or stay as our majority leader, I should say, or whether it's Chuck Schumer um, coming in as the new majority leader. And, and and really, ultimately, that means, you know, divided government for the Biden administration or whether it's unified. But let's talk about some of the ramifications for public health, uh, depending on who wins, because there are certainly a number of them. Right. So we'll start with if the Senate flips. If, if both Purdue and Leffler lose... 
and Vice President Harris casts the deciding vote. Chuck Schumer immediately becomes Senate Majority Leader, and um, it is highly likely that Patty Murray will then rise to be chairwoman of the Senate Help Committee. Um, now, if Republicans hold on in its status quo, and the um, there are a couple of options right now, because Senator Burr is in line to take the gavel of either the um, Senate Intelligence Committee or the Senate Help Committee. Now, if Senator Burr uh, were to decide he wanted to go to the Intelligence Committee, um, then the next person in line would be Senator Rand Paul. And so, as I'm sure many of our listeners have have heard, um, there have been some some run-ins with Senator Paul and public health officials like Dr. Redfield, Dr. Fauci, uh, in the past. Um, so it's certainly either way, whether it's Senator Burr, Senator Paul, Senator Murray, it's going to be a, a unique dynamic um, in the future for public health because the person at the helm of this committee is replacing retiring Senator Lamar Alexander, who has been a wonderful advocate in the past for public health. And so it's it's kind of uh, to be determined what um, – who – in charge, who is in charge of this uh, committee and, and how it's going to affect public health. So when it comes to the Democrats and if they end up getting the majority, um, you know, Patty Murray is currently the ranking member for both HELP and the Labor HHS subcommittee that is currently chaired by Senator Roy Blunt. Do you think she's going to prefer to lead HELP over Labor H appropriations? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And so, you know, the, my, my short answer is I don't know. Um, but I'd like to get your thoughts on that because, I mean, this is the space that you, you know uh, certainly better than me. Um, but let's take a step back. What is the Senate Help Committee and what is the Senate Labor Age Committee? Yeah, so the Senate Help Committee, HELP being the acronym for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, is the authorizing committee. So they're able to um, and have jurisdiction over our public health institutes like NIH and CDC, um, <clears throat> whereas the Labor H or Labor HHS subcommittee of the Senate Appropriations Committee has essentially the power of the purse over all of those um, agencies in, in HHS. So it's well. the, the difference in the people with the money and the purse strings and the people who make policy. That's exactly right. But one of the trends that we've seen over the years is that the appropriations committees, because their bills are essentially the federal budget and are what fund the federal government on an annual basis and are must-pass pieces of legislation – tend to do more and more policymaking year over year. And so there is an opportunity not only to determine where the money goes and how much goes, but also to make important tweaks around the edges, uh, to make clarifying language about how money can be spent, things like that, um, which in the end typically is, is more favorable, I think, for a lot of members of Congress. And it's a, typically a more sought-after Right position. So both of these committees are extremely important and extremely uh, valuable to uh, public health. 
That's right. And I think that if Patty Murray, if the if the Senate flips and the Dems hold a majority, I think Patty Murray is going to have a hard decision as to whether or not she wants to chair help or the Labor HHS subcommittee. I personally think she's going to want to lead the Labor HHS subcommittee um, because, as I mentioned before, I think that that holds more power. So, so if if that occurs, um, there are a couple of options on the Democratic side for who could then take her slot and become chairman for the HELP committee. Um, and the, the top choices are Bernie Sanders, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, and Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. And, you know, Bernie has already, or excuse me, Senator Sanders, um, has already made it pretty clearly known that he'd like a slot in the new administration. Um, I think he has his eye on the Secretary of Labor, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and who knows if that will come about or if there will be some other opportunity that he wants to take advantage of and is offered by the Biden administration. Um, but he also has a few other options on the table as well. He's currently the ranking member of the of the Senate Budget Committee. And while that's one of the B committees, they tier Senate committees, A, right. B, and C kind of based on what they view as their, um, their power and, and whatnot. Um, if, if the Democrats actually hold all three branches of government, um, then the budget be- committee becomes a pretty powerful committee in the fact that they can pass important legislation that paves the way for big bills that could impact our, the budget deficit. Right. And so, for example, you know, this is getting a little bit wonky, but they had to pass a budget resolution before they could pass key components of Obamacare. Obamacare was actually two, two different bills, but you had to have the budget component in order for um, the right pieces to ride along. And so there's a potential that if he could chair the budget committee, he might want to do that instead of help. But then again, given his concerns about labor, he may, he may want to helm, helm that committee instead. So in this, uh, game of Thrones and who's going to be sitting at which gavel, um, if, 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 you know, we already know Biden and Harris are taking the white house Speaker Pelosi remains. And so if we have all three branches of government controlled by the Democrats, these these committees are extremely important to laying the both with the budget committee, laying the groundwork on what the budget numbers will be. I think some folks don't fully appreciate that, you know, the bill that they see at the end of the day or the funding line that they see at the end end of the day for NIH, FDA or whatever has been months and months and months of backroom negotiations with multiple different committees and senators. And so the budget committee lays the groundwork, the framework. And then typically, typically that's how it works. Under under what is supposed to be regular order. Exactly. And then moving which gives you a lot of power it does. to to set the numbers that can and cannot be spent mm-hmm. and the guide rails, I would say. Exactly. And then you have the appropriators that are the write the check. And then you have the authorizers that set policy. Is that correct? Do I have that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Could not have said it better. Great. So there, there is a lot sort of in the balance and it'll be really interesting to see how things shake out once we have 
these two Senate races here in Georgia determined um, and what the balance of power looks like in the Senate right. after January 5th. So one other thing that you know we didn't talk about yet, but that I think is really important about our senators here in the state of Georgia and, and regardless of who it is, um, and also impacts public health, and more importantly, is that we have champions for the CDC. Um, you know, I think, you know, Kyle, you and I were passionate about trying to build champions for the CDC while we were there um, as chief and deputy chief and talked a lot about not only trying to generate that interest and support within the delegation, right. uh, but also within the key players that are, you know, at the helm of these important, you know, authorizing and appropriations committees. And it's not something that happens overnight, but, um, you know, I think for the future of public health, and especially as we are, you know, coming through this COVID-19 pandemic and all of the lessons that we've learned, I think one key thing that we really need is folks, especially here from the state of Georgia, that recognize CDC, support the CDC, and help to defend them, um, you know, moving forward, not only um, for the public health and, you know, the value that that adds to our lives every day here in America, but also um, from the other side of it, too, for the jobs that the CDC provides, um, the economic impact that they have. All of those things are important. And, you know, hopefully whoever our senators are next, that they're going to take on that responsibility as our local representatives. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I used to always say, I mean, if if the CDC were a private business, it would be one of the largest organizations in the state of Georgia, largest employers. Um, You know, we lost a huge champion with Senator Isaacson leaving the Senate. He was always such a wonderful um, steady hand when it came to supporting the CDC, public health in general, and his staff were as well. And so, you know, making sure that whoever steps into those shoes in the long term um, has an understanding of this gem that they have in their backyard. The CDC is literally the only federal agency not in Metro DC. And, you know, Everyone is so excited about these big companies that we have, Delta and Home Depot and Coca-Cola. But, you know, we should also be proud that we have the world's most premier public health organization here based in Atlanta, providing high-end jobs and providing safety and security, not only to Georgia and the country, but into the entire world. And... You know, our members of Congress, both Democrat and Republican, need to understand, you know, what I call the depth and breadth of what we do or what we did at the CDC and what the CDC currently does and be advocates. I mean, we talked about these important um, committee chair, uh, you know, chairmanships and how they can push and, and, and guide public health dollars in a way that could potentially come to the CDC. Look, I, I have to say, I mean, we're, we're as a country in a spot where public health has been neglected for decades under both Republican and Democrat administrations. It has been neglected with fewer dollars than it's actually needed. And the dollars that have been provided to places like the CDC have been restrictive. 
you know, when, you know, everyone looks at the CDC and say, you know, well, they, they received eight billion, nine billion dollars. That's plenty, but that's chopped up into over a hundred different funding lines with no flexibility to surge when we have a outbreak like COVID. And most of their funding actually goes out the door to states right, and local public health departments. Um, so it's not like they're holding all of their resources back. Correct. Um, it is, to your point, very prescriptive the way that money is spent um, and then where it goes. Right. And the CDC needs advocates both here in the state of Georgia and in these committees to that has an understanding that some of those restrictions may have harmed the response for COVID. And, and over the years, I mean, you can look at, you know, outbreak after outbreak after outbreak, whether it's Zika, whether it's Ebola, you know, whether it's H1N1. What happens is Congress says, here's a billion dollars, make it go away. And then that money that is usually relatively flexible, um, dwindles and you get back down to just the base budget. And so all of that surge capacity that you had with whether it's technology or personnel or whatever it was goes away. And then you have the next outbreak like COVID hits and immediately public health is behind the ball because the way public health is funded in this country. And it's just, you know, um, I, I hope the folks that are taking over these committees and are becoming, you know, advocates for public health realize that it's not as easy as just flipping a switch, making a vaccine, and it goes away. People have to understand that this outbreak, we have 250,000 people dead. And, you know, could all of those deaths been prevented? Absolutely not. Could we have on the front end done better with better technology, better data, and surge capacity to help stamp out these outbreaks where they were in California, New York, and other areas? Absolutely. The funding wasn't there, and the flexibility wasn't there. These are things that have to be addressed, or this is going to continue to happen over and over again. So it's my hope that whoever is the chairman of these committees— and whoever is the uh, senator from Georgia and uh, new members of Congress from Georgia will realize that public health is uh, important, it's valuable, and we have a unique opportunity here to um, put the past behind us and move forward in a way that will help public health and not harm it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to stay classy and stay healthy, America.